everyone. Um, my name is Paul Buckley. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to look at God's Word. Part of our worship time is we're before a God who speaks to us. He speaks to us through His Word. Um, and that's wonderful. Wonderfully gracious and kind of Him. He loves to communicate to us. And, and so we feature uh, time in the teaching and proclamation of His Word as part of our worship time. So we're going through a series in, in the book of Revelation. Uh, not because we have a, a peculiar fascination with this book, but because it's a big book in the Bible, 22 chapters. And so we are addressing it because, because of that. It's just an important book, obviously. Uh, so we've been making our way, and we're actually near the end of the book. So we're starting into chapter 21, and then there's one more chapter after this. So thank you for all of you who have been here for the whole journey. It's been uh, a lot of stuff, a lot of material, but I trust that it's encouraged you. Uh, and now in these two chapters, we're going to see some wonderful things as it speaks about uh, God's new creation. I really love these two chapters of Scripture. They are some of my favorites in all of Scripture. Uh, and it makes me think of actually the show. I don't, it stopped running in 2012, so that's a while ago now. But Extreme Home Makeover, did anyone ever watch that series? Yeah, I, I, I really I loved it. I know it may seem kind of goofy, but uh, I did. Um, and, and the way the series went is they would go to a family that had um, a special need, basically. It, it sometimes was just the family had an old house and it was really hard to take care of their family and so forth. There was a rundown house. But, but often this, these families would have uh, ministries, things that they were involved in, uh, perhaps fostering a lot of children or doing something in their community and so forth. And, and uh, their house was not suited. Uh, off, often these houses were like shacks. And so the uh, the crew would come in, uh, they would come in and they would send off the family uh, to Disney World basically for a week or so. I think it was a week, right? They used to do it in a week. And during that week they would come with this huge crew and they would demolish the old house and then they would start building a new house. Um, and, um, and it was kind of their dream home. And you'd get to know the family along the way. They'd do interviews and so forth. And you'd see them building the house and it was just amazing that they did it all in a week. And they would especially tailor that home for the good of the family. Uh, and, and if they were involved in some sort of ministry, uh, they would gear the house that way. So just incredible things that they did, really imaginative, creative things. Um, and then at the end, once the house was done, you wouldn't get to see it all, right? And uh, the family would return, they'd kind of get out of the, the cars and stuff, and they'd have, two, uh, they'd have a big bus, sometimes two big buses, in front of the house. You guys remember that? And the family would come out and tie, the host would say, are you ready? And they'd all stay together, move that bus. And they'd move the bus, and there'd be the home, and everyone would be excited, and they'd take them through it, and, and it was great. And you'd cry every week. It was the same thing every week. You'd still cry, oh, it's so wonderful, watching that. And I, I, I didn't always cry, but a lot of times I did, I, I admit. Um, well, anyhow, uh, I'm going to get lost in the story and forget why I'm telling it. The, the point is, uh, we are in a, a point in Revelation where basically... It's a move that bus moment, all right? Uh, God has given us a glimpse of this extreme home makeover. That is the ultimate home, far better than anything you would see made by Ty and his crew. The ultimate extreme home makeover. And in chapter 21, God says, move that bus. The bus goes aside and we get a glimpse of this home. Chapter 21 and 22 are pictures of this amazing home that is our final home. 
And we know the context for this letter. The letter was written for the church, really for the church throughout the ages, but originally for the church living in a time when it was really hard. A time and place when it really was hard to be a believer. All the pressures of the society were basically working against you. And for many of these churches in the different cities, these representative cities that are addressed earlier in the book, um, you were shut out of jobs. You were shut out of social uh, conveniences. You were shut out even of life because you could be killed for your faith. And so to be a Christian meant a, to pay a high cost to lose uh, your jobs, to lose your families, to even lose your life. Uh, and so it was hard to be a believer. And so this letter is written for believers in those contexts to say, guys, it's worth it. Hang in there. Don't compromise with the world. You have all this pressure to say just compromise. Somehow dumb down your Christianity so it's more acceptable. Or deny Christ or whatever it might be. And so there were all these different alternatives that were there for them to tempt them away from the simple devotion to Jesus, hanging on to Jesus, trusting in Christ alone through all these things. And so this letter is written for them. And really that applies to all of us because we live in a world that is uh, full of brokenness, full of sin, full of evil. The, the enemy is active. Yes, he's restrained to a degree, but he's still active. And we are opposed. And it's hard to be a believer. And so this letter is written to strengthen us. And these chapters function in this strengthening. These chapters are a glimpse of that extreme home makeover so that we would realize it's worth it. And so we would be motivated to hang on, to remain faithful. To hang on to Jesus as He hangs on to us because it will all be worth it. So with that background, let's pray and then look at chapter 21, verses 1-8. through And then... Spend time learning from God's Word. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for these truths. Thank You for this home that You have for us, O oh Lord. This ultimate home that awaits us that is far better than anything we can imagine. And Lord, I pray that as we look at Your Word, would You strengthen Your people this morning? Wherever they might be, Lord. Some of us are, are just uh, we're weary. We face our own sin. We face the world. We face the enemy's activity. Maybe for some of us, there's been something discouraging this week. I pray You'd strengthen each and every person wherever they might be. Lord, I pray for those of us who uh, may be compromising and uh, dumbing down our Christianity to get along. I pray You would speak and encourage and strengthen us. For some of us here who maybe have not put our faith in Jesus, I pray You'd call us to trust You because there's nothing better than to belong to You and to experience what You have in store for us. So help us, O oh Lord. Help me, Lord. Uh, I, the, these topics are, are so fantastic. and I know my limitations, so I pray You'd help me just to teach and proclaim Your Word. And we'd be changed by You, God. Speak to us. Glorify Your name, we pray. Amen. Chapter 21, verses 1-8. through 8. John, the, the Apostle, is seeing vision after vision here. And he says in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away 
every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And He was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. God's Word from Revelation 21, 1-8. Again, I, this teaches us to remain faithful. It's a call to us to remain faithful to the end. God has a fantastic new eternal life awaiting us. That is more than worth it. And we're offered these amazing promises here. And there, there are four different aspects of, of these promises that are, are detailed here. So I want to dig in just four different points regarding these promises. First, there's the promise of a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth. So it starts, John sees, uh, he's seen already the final judgment. That was last chapter in chapter 20. Now in chapter 21, verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So the first heaven and the first earth are gone. That's the, the context to the rest of the book. There are earlier parts these things happen on the first earth or in the first heaven. But now these are gone. There's a new heaven and a new earth. The old earth is gone. The old earth, this, this earth, the first earth that we know, this earth that's, that is in many ways glorious, in many ways shows the glory of God, but, but mixed in are, are other things. Sin and evil and brokenness. This old earth is a broken, fallen earth. It's an earth groaning for redemption. It's an earth that has death in it and sorrow and hardship. It's an earth that houses those living and enjoying rebellion against God. Rebellion against all that is true and good and glorious. But now, in chapter 21, the first earth, the old earth, this earth is gone forever. And the first heaven is gone as well. The old heaven, the Old heaven that was the place of, of the spiritual, uh, the place of spiritual battles, the, the place of spiritual conflicts, the, the place where Satan is cast from onto the earth, him and his accomplices, these angels, these evil angels. Um, the old heaven is gone. It's all gone. This, the old heaven where God dwelled uh, in a place in the heavenlies that had to be separate from the earth. A place where the holy God dwelt separately with His holy angels, the the hosts and the saints as we've learned about, but separate from the earth. This old way of doing heaven and earth. The first heaven is gone. This former way of creation of the earth and heaven as it was, the earth fallen, these things are gone. 
And in their place is a radically new creation. A new heaven and a new earth joined together in a radically new version. It's interesting that the word in the original language for new, there are different words you can use for new. It's a new that means new in its type, not necessarily in, the, in its time. So this isn't you know, heaven and earth version 2. This is a totally new sort of heaven and earth. It's, it's you know, to make a metaphor, it's not like we, you know, for us, transportation-wise, we go from tra- main transportation version 1 to 2. We go from horse-drawn carriages to cars, right? That's version 1 to version 2. This is like going from horse-drawn carriages to, to the Millennium Falcon, a thousand light-years per hour, you know, traveling the universe. That's the sort of difference here. It's not just a, a, you know, the second version, it's entirely different experience of heaven and earth that are going on here. Radically new. Radically upgraded. Um, joined together. Heaven and earth joined together. That's what's going on here. They're, they're no longer separate. They're together. And we're going to see that through the rest of these chapters. So it's a new heaven, a new earth joined together. Recreated. No more sorrow. No more sin. No more sadness. No more separation between the heavenly, heavenlies and the earth. They're together now. It's, it's amazing. Now, it says the sea is no more. And you might think, well, of course, if the earth's gone, the sea is gone. Why is that there? And for us, you know, culturally, I think generally, uh, we like the ocean. How many here like the ocean? The sea? Yeah, I, most of us. Um, so we're like, oh, no, no more sea. I can't go to the, the shore anymore. Um, that's not the point. Uh, the, the point here, again, there, there are symbolic things in Scripture, and not to say they don't have actual realities, but they represent things. And for the, the Hebrew mind, the and much of the ancient mind, the sea was a place of chaos and evil. And in the book of Revelation, the sea has functioned that way quite a bit. The sea has been the place where the beast came from, right? The, the first beast came out of the sea. The sea is a place that gives up its dead. It's like Hades. So in the mind, the ancient mind, the sea was a, a bad place. The sea is a place where, the, where Babylon, the harlot of Babylon, trades and gets all her resources to grow rich and corrupt. And so that when it says the sea is no more, it means that, that evil, that chaos, that danger, that system is gone. It's representing that. Now, I'm not saying that there will be a sea. I just don't know. I don't think that's the point. I, I, we love the sea because it shows God's glory. It's enjoyable. And maybe there will be a version of that. You know, there, there will be a river. We know that. At least symbolically, there's this river. I think it's more than that. But anyhow, the point is that this is a totally different earth absent of chaos and evil full of pure peace and goodness and glory and john sees the holy city the new jerusalem coming down out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband this is a holy city the new jerusalem revelation's been speaking of other cities right cities like babylon and rome and jerusalem under false religion these evil cities well this is a holy city, a new Jerusalem, an entirely different thing. and Similar, certainly, and possessing all that was good about the original Jerusalem being the city of God's people, the city of God's presence, but entirely new. Coming down out of heaven. Coming down from God. God is the One who has prepared this city and is bringing this city to earth. She's a bride adorned for her husband. Um, this is a picture Think of in a wedding when you have a bride coming down the aisle dressed in white, uh, adorned with, with 
attractive and elegant jewelry. That's, that's the picture here. And, and, and the sense is this is holy, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming as that bride down the aisle and every head turning to look and behold the beautiful bride. And, and there's one face that's lit up most of all. It's the bridegroom, Christ Himself, receiving His people at this moment. Uh, that's the picture here uh, of this new Jerusalem. And this is a city, but it represents the people of God. It's not just a geographical city. It's the people of God. It's all the people of God. This, this is billions of people who have trusted Christ and who have remained faithful to the end, uh, receiving their reward. It's a place, it's a city representing the people of God as a holy people. A people made ready by God Himself, rescued by the blood of the Lamb, rescued through faith by the power of the Spirit, and redeemed. They are dressed in robes of righteousness prepared for them. And they are presented without spot and glorious to the Lord. And, and the, every head in heaven is turning saying, wow, look at the people of God and how glorious they are as, we, as they are joined with Christ in, in this place of glory and beauty. That's the picture, guys. And it's, it's, these are... Symbolic things representing realities. There's, there's aspects it's hard to know exactly what part is purely literal and so forth, but certainly it represents more than, than just a city. It represents the people of God. And it's to give us a, uh, a picture of what awaits us. It's to affect us viscerally even as we think about it and consider it. So use your mind to analyze, but let the, let the sense of this change you. Let the sense as you remember being at a wedding and watching the bride come down the aisle and watching that groom uh, just be full of joy. That's the picture here. This is a glorious moment as, as the new Jerusalem comes down from, from God. And God's people get to be with their God forever. Uh, we get to be in the presence of God as His people, as part of the city, as part of the bride. I can remember uh, back in when Peg and I were engaged and uh, we would see each other on the weekends. We did, I lived in Boston. She was up here in Haverhill. Um, and I can remember uh, just how hard it was at the end of the weekend to say goodbye. Um, just we're ready to get married. Um, and and uh, how it was just difficult. And I remember talking about, won't it be great uh, in a little while we'll be married and we don't have to say goodbye. We get to be together as a married couple. Uh, and that's what's going on here. The people of God. We, we at times, guys, we live in a... Though God is with us in many ways, we live in this fallen world and God can feel distant at times, right? Part of the, the biggest struggle often that we deal with is just a sense of, where is God? All I know is my sin and the, the brokenness around me and these different things I have to struggle with. with. Where is God? And we long for His nearness. We long for His kingdom and we don't know it yet fully. But there will be a day when we never have to say goodbye. We never move away from that glorious presence being there in a powerful way and being aware of His glory and His goodness and enjoying that forever. Well, this is what Revelation 21 is speaking of for us. And so it goes on with more aspects of the promise. John sees these things and then 
He hears something in, in verse 3. He hears a loud voice. So there's a promise of a new experience. There's a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. These are two historic promises. The next is in verse 4. Given in Scripture. That God gave actually early on and hinted at very early this promise of dwelling with us. It goes way back to the Garden of Eden because we know as we read about it that God would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. That He, he dwelt with them in that, in that garden, that paradise, that, that royal place. And yet that got broken. But then God pursues mankind. He runs after mankind. He calls Ab- Abram to Himself. He calls the people to Himself. Uh, and then He does it again when they're in Egypt. He, re- he calls them to Himself. He redeems them out of Egypt. And then He calls them to dwell together. And where does God dwell? as they are in their tents and they are assembled in the desert. Where is God's tent in the middle of all that? In the middle of all that. That's right. God's tent, the tabernacle, is right there in the center. And they camp around the tabernacle. God called them to live with Him. And in Leviticus 26, we have that verse to show. He says, I will make My dwelling among you and My soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be My people. That's almost word for word for Revelation 21, isn't it? And he's speaking of his time when he's uh, the tent, the tabernacle, the, the precursor to the temple itself is there right in the middle of the people. And the word for dwell actually is the word for tabernacle or tent. And it's the same sort of word in Revelation. Uh, the idea of tabernacling, tenting, living, having a house right among you. And so this is uh, a fulfillment of that promise. That promise in, uh, in Leviticus 26 uh, was corrupted because the people wandered and rebelled against God. So they did not enjoy His active, continuous presence. They were exiled. And then we know that God in His mercy sent Christ Himself to be God among us. God dwelling with us. And in John chapter 1, that same word is used. It says John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled, tented among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So God has come to dwell among us through Christ. Became a man to live among us and rescue us from our sin. To pay for our sin on the cross. Shed His blood so we could be forgiven and accepted in and welcomed into His presence. So Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that, but its fullness doesn't come to the very end. And that's Revelation 21. That the fullness of it, the, the nearness dwelling with the Lord forever will come in this new creation. It's a wonderful promise to be with the Lord and, and never have to, to go away. Um, just the, this other week, we were down at my parents' vacation home and my granddaughter uh, Ellie was there uh, and... Uh, her parents as well, and we're just enjoying the time. It was, it was her first time there, and the weather was beautiful. It was back during that heat wave, and it was really nice down there. Had a great time of fishing and swimming, and then I heard her say to her mom, Mom, let's stay here forever. Um, and, uh, and I understand. Well, guys, this place with the Lord, we will get to stay there forever uh, and be in His presence and enjoy Him. And, and it would be far better than any vacation home we would ever know here. That's, that's the truth. That's what we're to get as we look at this promise. There's a second part of the promise. There's a historic promise 
answered as well in verse 4. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is a historic promise as well. It's given in Isaiah 25. Um, and, and it says that basically the same sort of thing. It, God is speaking of the, the final home. He says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. It's interesting. Just This is a fulfillment of this passage. It parallels it in many ways. In one of the ways it's in peculiar, the use of the word people is plural in Revelation 21 and plural in Isaiah 25. It's a rare occurrence to say peoples instead of people. And so, the, so God is saying in His Word, guys, this is fulfillment and this is about peoples. This is about all people. This is not about just the Jewish people. This is about all peoples being rescued. All of my people from all the different tribes and nations being rescued from death and sin and experiencing this new creation on this mountain, on, in this new Jerusalem. No more tears. No more evil. No more sin. No more suffering. No more sorrow. No more death or dying. No more mourning or crying. The death and all of its effects, and the effects of sin, have been healed and eradicated forever. Oh, I look forward to that day. Um, Guys, death stinks, doesn't it? Even when we know someone's with the Lord, we know that they've trusted in Christ. They're safe because of the blood and righteousness of Christ. They're safe. They're with Him. Even then, it's still hard, isn't it? We grieve and we mourn. Um, it's interesting. I mean, we have hope, but we still grieve and mourn over death. And, and even, I mean, even people that are atheists and would say, well, it's just part of the natural order, you know, the propagation of the species, you, you have your time to pass on your genes and you're gone, you know. They still mourn over death. They still are grieved. And, and it's because it's, it's, it comes against such a fundamental aspect of who we are. We're made in the image of God. We're not mere animals. We're made in the image of God. We reflect who God is. We're made to reflect his goodness and his glory. That we're made to reflect things that are true. We're made to image him. And, and when that image is cut off, there's just something fundamentally wrong. We, we get it. We don't even necessarily know how to articulate it, but it's just wrong. And it grieves us. And it should not be so to have one made in the image of God to die. I, I believe that's what's behind the grief. And there'll be a day when there'll be no more death. There'll be no more cessation of the glory of God being reflected in His people. It will not stop. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more crying. Every tear will be wiped away in the presence of God. And that profound grief and sorrow will be gone forever. 
only enjoying peace and joy in His presence. It's going to be wonderful. And these promises are given to us to strengthen us. Because, guys, we live in the land where there is still death. And we will all die physically. And there's grief that will come with that. But there's comfort here because death will be eradicated. There will be no more tears. No more sorrow. Only joy. As sure as there is a resurrection. As sure as Christ has risen from the grave. As sure as there's been a first creation, there will be a new creation. There will be a, a full resurrection and life eternal without death without sorrow, forever and ever, and everything will be made right. Nothing will be wrong. John goes on in this section, verses 5 and 6, to make this abundantly clear in another way. God Himself makes three declarations about this. It's interesting, as you read through it, it's like, okay, I got it. New earth. You're saying it again and again. New Jerusalem got that. And now it's repeated again. Why? Why is it repeated again? in verse 5 and 6, that we have to have this thing emphasized over and over again. Well, like Toby said, we need to hear these things over and over again. We forget. And, and specifically, in verses 5 and 6, we need to hear God's bold, firm, loud guarantee. And that's what's going on in these verses. It's God Himself exclaiming these things. And so He says, Behold! says, and he who was seated on the throne, who's seated on the throne? God. And he says, Behold, listen up, pay attention, get this, grasp this, let this hit you. Behold, I am making all things new. This is not just something that's just going to happen. No, I'm involved. I am. I, the eternal one, the self existent one, God himself who is in charge of all things, rules all things. He is making all things new. He's making all things new. Not just some things, but all things. Things, everything will be radically changed. Heaven and earth will all be changed. He is the one doing it. And He will do it. He's, he will accomplish these things. And then He says to John, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He wants John not only to know and behold, that He is doing it. But He says, write this down, John. Write these things down. Write this guarantee down that, that I am doing this. Write these truths down for they are trustworthy and true. If there is ever anything to trust, if there is any, ever any guarantee to stand on, if there is ever any truth to trust you to trust this. More than you trust your own eyes. More than you trust your own self-existence. More than anything, trust this. These words are trustworthy and true. I will do this. I am doing it. It is sure it is done. That, that's what he's saying here. That's how it needs to operate in our lives. Don't trust your feelings. Don't trust your limited perception of what's going on in your life. Don't trust your circumstances. Don't trust other things. Don't trust what others say. Trust this. Trust God's Word. Trust this part of God's Word that He is and will do this. This is a guarantee. Set your hope on this. Not how you feel today or tomorrow. Not what someone says. Not some temptation. Not some false 
identity offered to you, whether from the world or self or the devil. Don't trust in these things. Trust in this. This new creation will happen. God guarantees it. That's what's being said. And he goes on. And he said to me, so now a third time, God is saying, it is done. It is done. It's, consider it accomplished. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the one who is in charge of all things. I existed before things, anything existed. I exist for eternity. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the A and Z of all reality. It is done. This is a sure promise. There's no sure thing than the coming reality of this new creation. That's what's going on here, guys. Three times, God Himself making declarations so that we would understand that this is a guarantee and put our hope here. But that would change us. How we live. As I get older, um, uh, having a retirement uh, is more appealing. I admit when I was 20-something, I thought, ah, I don't need to worry about retirement. Jesus is going to come back before I retire or whatever. I just didn't think about it as much. Now at 50-something, it's becoming um, more appealing. Because at some point, I might need my retirement. Um, and uh, just the other day I was talking with some guys about uh, the federal retirement program which I don't have anymore I used to work for the federal government and, uh, and I was like wow that's really good isn't it uh, great it's a, the system that was there I started working in 86 the system that was there right before I started working uh, had you didn't pay any social security tax uh, and then you got a pension and then you could also invest in a 401k later that started in 86 and so when you retire, you could be making up to 80% of your regular income before you retired. That, I mean, that's really amazing. That's a really, if you know retirement, that's a great pension. And it was guaranteed as long as the, the government of the United States existed. It was guaranteed. Um, and so it's, I listened, I thought, well, that's really, really in, you know, appealing and too bad. I don't have it now, you know. And, um, and not to worry about that, God, we're doing things to take care of that. I don't, want, I don't want to distract you in that. But the point is that God here is guaranteeing us a sure retirement with Him. And He's saying, I guarantee this. God Himself. God who does not change. God who's sovereign over all things. I am doing this. This is your future. For those of you who remain faithful, who hang on to Jesus as He hangs on to you, this is your future. And you need to think about this. And you need to build your life on this. And what's the result when we do that? It's, it's not only just a sense of hope, like, okay, I don't have to worry about my retirement in the same way. I've got to be responsible, but I don't need to worry. But also, we can live boldly now, can't we, when we get this? That, that our future is taken care of. We're forgiven in Christ. We're counted as sons and daughters. And we have a future with God that's guaranteed. So we don't need to worry about our lives now. We don't need to worry about death. We don't need to let sorrows and suffering get us down. We are to set our hope on our sure rewards and live our lives boldly now. Invest our time and talents in things of the kingdom. Give generously. Start with the tithe, 10% to your local church. Give beyond that though. Give generously. Give, live boldly. Give to missions. Set your goal for 20% of your income. Give it away. Invest your time in other relationships, key relationships, your family, church, your neighbors. 
It adjusts our perspective when we recognize what's in store for us. And we stop worrying and stop trying to provide security now in the same way. There's a place for that. Don't get me wrong. But we don't live for it. We're free to live boldly. That's, that's what's being said here. It's, it, it comforts us as we're tempted to give up on Christ in a hard world, but it also emboldens us to live for Christ boldly because of what awaits us. Finally, verses 6-8, in light of these promises, there, there's more promises given here, but there's a call to evaluate. So there's a promise and evaluation in verses 6-8. through eight. It, it shifts a little bit here. Now the, promise, the promises are given to particularly type of people, particular types of people. <coughs> Excuse me. It says here, uh, the latter, latter part of verse 6, to the thirsty there's something. Then the conquerors, and then it addressed cowards and so forth. So it now names types of people and promises to them. First, to the thirsty. To those who are thirsty. The, the thirsty are addressed. No, what does this mean? Those that didn't get a drink of water, they're, they're thirsty? No, it's spiritual thirst. It's people that are spiritually thirsty. They have actually, the, the background here is they've, they've already tasted, they've already had a drink of the Lord. They've tasted and seen that He's good. And they're thirsty for more. They want Him. They want to be satisfied in Him. And we see that throughout Scripture, that idea. Uh, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. Jesus in John 7 uh, calls those, who, if anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. First Peter says that we're to long for pure spiritual milk. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so, to those who are thirsty, those who have tasted that God is good and want more, you will be satisfied. You will get to drink from this spring of water of life without payment. Your thirst will be quenched. Thirsty people don't give up on pursuing something to drink, right? When you're really thirsty, you don't just say, oh, whatever, it's, not, it's just thirst, forget about it. No, you're, you're, you're living to drink. I'm looking to find a drink of water. And so this is a promise given to those who are thirsty. And it's basically the implication is, guys, remain thirsty. Don't stop being thirsty for God and look forward to what you will receive. You will be satisfied. Don't stop being thirsty. Don't stop longing for Jesus. Drinking of what you have, but longing for more. Next, He promises the one who conquers will have this heritage. The one who conquers will have a heritage, will be called a, a son or daughter. I, it says, I will be his God and he will be my son. Certainly son and daughter inclusive in that. The one who conquers. what Conquers what? Well, conquering has been in the book of Revelation quite a bit, right? The one who conquers really the world. Who conquers following the ways of the world. Who conquers following the ways of sin. Who conquers giving in to their selfish desires. The, the one who conquers these things will receive this heritage. So how do you conquer? How does that happen? How do you conquer? Do you just kind of lift yourselves up by the bootstraps and be a bold, strong Christian? No, we, we've seen this. We see it in Revelation. We see it in all of Scripture. You conquer by following the, the conqueror. Christ has conquered. He has conquered sin and death. He went to the cross. He shed His blood. He gave up His life to pay for sin in all of its penalty. He's went there to pay for your sins. Should you turn and trust Him? Simply turn and trust Him to pay for your sins. Turn away from sin. 
And that sin is paid for by faith. That's a truth that, that is sure. And He conquers by dying on the cross for our sins, and then He rises again on the third day, victorious over sin and death. He overcame this world. He went through the worst this world could offer and overcame it. He's conquered. And when we follow Him, when we depend on Him, we conquer. It's not by being strong in yourself. It's by being strong in Jesus. It's by depending on Him and staying with Him. That's how you conquer. We don't face the bully of the devil and the world in our own sin on our own. We're no match for them. They will beat us up badly. But when we show up on the playground of the world with our big brother Jesus, He takes care of us. And He conquers for us. We trust in Him. He's the conqueror. Finally, there's another category of person here in, in this section. So the promises offered to the thirsty to be satisfied, the conqueror to have this heritage, and now there's a promise to the coward and what follows. And so it lists these different types of people, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, so forth. Is, is this just kind of, you know, John or God going off on, you know, bad behavior, bad things? What's going on? Why, why this long list of all these terrible sorts of people? Is God just being condemning here? No, no, look at the list. Think about what you see there. These are the sorts of characters, the sorts of behavior we've been seeing in Revelation from those who don't depend on Jesus, right? From those who, who decide they're going to do it on their own. They're going to rebel. They're going to live life their own way. First, the cowards. Cowards are people that have not depended on Jesus. And all of us are cowards left to ourselves. They've, they've refused to stand strong in the face of persecution. And they said when they faced persecution, Ain't worth it. I'm, I'm afraid of my neighbors not liking me or I'm afraid of this you know, martyrdom, so I'm going to run away. And they give up on the faith. That's, that's the coward. Um, rather than being bold, not in themselves, but depending on Jesus. The faithless, those who give up faith, walk away. The detestable, those who would give themselves to, to things that are detestable to find their lives in that. That was going on in the churches. There were people who were mixing Christianity with these detestable practices thinking it was okay. And, and God said, no, this is, these are not my ways. I, I am a good and holy God. To follow Me means to walk in these things. So you don't give up on the Lord. You depend on Him. You walk in His ways. You don't follow these detestable things. Murderers. What, what does that mean? Well, we've seen murderers in the book. This is really speaking about those who murder other Christians. Those who bring the persecution. Those who, in their rebellion, oppose God's people to the point of even promoting their rebellion directly or indirectly. Sexually immoral in that culture and in every culture. This is a, an alternative to following Jesus. That's there. It's real, right? And, and you know, I've, I've talked with people at times just having conversations. You know, if you don't have Jesus in the world, that's kind of the best thing you have. And that's often why the world falls into that. They're looking for something to fill themselves that will never work. Only God can do that. And so it's a way of the world. Sorcerers, those who seek spiritual power without God. That's what a sorcerer is. Idolaters, those who worship false gods. And all liars. It finishes with liars. Why does it say that? Someone who tells a white lie is kind of in the same category? No, these, these are people who are committed to, to falsehood and all that comes with it. They're committed to living a deceived life, following the enemy, following the world, instead of following truth incarnate, following Jesus. And so all these people 
who refuse to depend on Jesus and run to Jesus, there's a promise for them. Their portion is in the lake of fire and sulfur. The second death. It's a dramatic alternative to what we've been seeing. And, and well, why is it here? Because this was really good until we got to this part, right? I mean, it was nice to talk about all this great stuff. All this promise. And now we've got to go back to the lake of fire. Why? Well, it's here because the book of Revelation is a call to believers first to remain faithful. To hold on to Jesus. To endure to the end. Because it's the one who endures to the end who will be saved. Let me tell you, brother or sister, if you do not endure to the end, you will not be saved. And those of you who know us well enough are probably thinking, okay, how does that match with our strong and clear biblical belief that if God has you in the palm of His hand, He'll never let you go. How's that square with that? Well, it's, it's a hard one, but let me tell you, this, this is how I understand it. That for the believer, you indeed are safe in Him. And, and we've seen, right? Your name is written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. That's, that's your guarantee, right? So let's not diminish that. But if you are a believer and you hear these warnings, they will be, are God's means in your life to keep you. God always works through means. He's sovereign, but He works through means. And He works through the means of you and your mind and your life and your choices. And when you hear these promises on the good side and the warnings, the, the promises that are negative, like if you, are, if you give up on Jesus, this is what awaits you, it will be effective in your life. And you will say, no way I want Jesus. Oh, help me God. And that prayer and that orientation, and when you say, I don't want that, I, don't, I, I want to endure to the end because I want Jesus, I don't want this thing, you will run to His grace. You will run to your brothers and sisters and say, let us get together and pray for each other and help each other. And you will want to be in church on Sundays because you know you need grace. See, it's an error to take divine sovereignty and neglect the means. And you may end up making the error of not going to the means, and you may prove in the end that you are not elect from eternity past. These means are essential. And, and in Scripture, they're given this way. They're for our good. They're warnings here for the believer. It's not worth it. It's never worth it to fall away from Jesus. It is worth everything to trust Him and stay close to Him. And you will have amazing reward. So don't give up your faith. It also functions for those who don't know Jesus. And if the band could come up as we close. Because this is amazing promise here in Jesus. It's free. This, this gift of salvation is free. You need to just turn away from the world's ways and your old ways and trust in Christ. It's, it's free. You have this promise. And the alternative is to be separated from God and rightly judged. So the call here for all of us, right? Whether you are a believer right now or yet to be a believer, run to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Remain faithful to the end because it will all be worth it. Let me pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for these truths that we need to hear. And I pray that this passage will be functional in all of our lives to strengthen us, to give us hope, to help us to hold on. And I pray for those who don't yet know You, Lord, draw them to see that belonging to You is worth more than 
anything this world would ever offer. We ask in Christ's name.